UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Now, it is a sad but true fact that even in this day and age, if something goes wrong in the world, if there is conflict, if there is discrimination, if there is violence, if there is deprivation, if there is persecution, in the vast majority of situations, women will come off worse. And even in progressive Western societies, when something goes terribly wrong, you see shades of that reality, let alone where women are already marginalised, at risk, perhaps even victims. That's no great surprise to many of us, because throughout history, including recent history, the use of gender-based oppression and sexual violence as a tool of war or to control the masses has been well documented. And only a few of those who commit such atrocities and such behaviours end up in front of war crimes or human rights tribunals. But over recent years, in no small part thanks to the work of my guest today, there has been a growing awareness of the role of gender in religious persecution. And the work of genderandreligiousfreedom.org has been highlighting that for women of religious minorities in intolerant communities, persecution has had an added element. Emma Dipper is the founding director of genderandreligiousfreedom.org. It's also a pleasure to say that she's an old friend of Talking Point and indeed Life Issues. She has a background in aid work and has seen many things that in truth would challenge your faith in God, let alone man. And she is my guest for this week's Life Issues. Welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be with you again. The reality, and we've touched on this with previous interviews we've done, which is why we've come back to do it in more depth for a Life Issues podcast. The, the reality is that all around the world, persecution of variety of forms is impacting women more than perhaps we realised. So what do we mean when we talk about gender-based persecution? Paint us a picture of the sort of things that you are seeing, the stories that you are hearing that show what it's like in particular for Christian women in intolerant societies. So if we would, um, I'll, let's go straight into Egypt. I think that would be good, Paul. And uh, there you have a large community of, of Christians there. The Coptic Orthodox um, Christians uh, have been present there until since the beginning of, of Christian history. Um, they'd say that about 10% of, of believers there are, are um, followers of Jesus. Um, and of those, of those Christians, only about 5% are evangelical. The rest are, are Coptic Orthodox. And they are people who, when you sort of unwrap their beliefs, their very core is, is actually an understanding of martyrdom. Mm. So why is that? Because actually right from the beginning of their, their history, they knew that, that actually to follow Jesus was a willingness to, to count the cost, to actually count your cost until death. And that is absolutely ingrained in the church there. So that's been for the whole history of the church in Egypt. But how about the difference between men and women? So today you might have a Christian Orthodox um, family, Coptic Orthodox family, and they will be living in, in dire poverty. 
the majority of them are. And say if they're in Cairo, they could be in what might be termed a slum. It sounds a derogatory term, but that's what it is referred to. And that will be so they'll have minimal, minimal access to water, electricity, but also as a family, they will have minimal access to education and progress in employment. So because of their surnames, so for instance, if the if the males in the family were to go out to work, they might have the lower paid jobs without um, accessibility to employment or increased um, promotion because they are Christians. They might be sidelined, etc. Now mm. for women, if they were to walk out of the street, they look different from the majority there because they're not veiled. They might be wearing jeans and a T-shirt and they have every right to do it. The constitution in Egypt says that they have a right to live as a minority. However, as a woman walking down the street, they, will, they can be spat at, they can be harassed. There will be young men riding by on um, rickshaws, little motorised rickshaws, trying to crash into them and to intimidate them. And sadly and tragically, there will be some young girls who will be lured into a relationship with a young man from the majority religion there, it's Islam. And he will, what we would term in UK um, language, groom her. And she might get to a point where she chooses to marry him um, because she has been lured into that relationship. And that's because as a woman, she will be targeted because of her gender, her sexuality. And when they start, say, a relationship, a physical relationship, she will then be trapped within that offence of both their face, where if she was to go home and say, um, I want to marry him, well, if they knew that she was already pregnant or already in a relationship with him of that sort, they would rather um, cover the shame of that than actually bring her black into a safe place. So you find they get married and then they realise they're trapped. They're promised everything, but they're then trapped mm. and then they can be then lured to Saudi Arabia, et cetera, where they enter a trafficking um, ring. And that's that's what we have reported from Egypt as an example. And, and it will sound, I mean, when you start to tell that story and you start to tell that account, on one level, it sounds like, there's a normality to this, but it is, and and this is perhaps repeated in different ways in different situations. It is the intentionality to do harm, whether it be physical sexual assault, whether it be physical violence, whether it be the disruption of family, whether it be the the undermining of that woman's role within community, whether it be the targeting and the grooming ostensibly to enter into a loving marriage and a caring marriage and a secure future and find yourself trafficked so you end up in a, a brothel somewhere on the other side of the world. The, it's the intentionality to target women that I think will be what surprises people. What, what drives that? So what's driving it is, is to get into right into the centre of the most vulnerable pressure point. They're called pressure points when you read the reports from Open Doors um, on gender-specific religious persecution. The most vulnerable place. So if a, a community was asking for an identity, one of the aspects that they would be, they would be concerned about is the perceived purity of their women. Now, that's I'm not agreeing with that, but I'm saying that actually if you break or offend or, or damage that identity that if they are pure, we are pure, 
And then that breaks it. And the other side for women is their family status. So if a woman is violated um, and, and, you know, and everything with it, it also, and any damage to her, also affects the next generation. So with women, you will always know that if it's a mother, it will affect her child and her children's children. So it's so strategic that that is why it's targeted in such a way. And I mentioned in my introduction, I mean, in many ways, this is nothing new. You go back through recent history, the targeting of women in during warfare, the use of yeah. sexual violence during warfare, um, hey, to, in, to do exactly that, to undermine the communities from which these women are taken. You go back further back through history and you see it through all sorts of environments where there has been a desire to control the masses, a desire to dominate. To Dominate one particular group, desire to to put down a minority group. You see this this targeting happening again and again and again. So, what has changed that we are now more willing to spotlight this if it's been going on through history? So, I started looking at this. Um, I think in two, around two thousand and seven. So, I like you said in my introduction, I'd, I'd worked in the aid world. I'd worked in disaster management. Um, I've been a nurse and a midwife. Um, so, I've curative care, community health. You know, all sorts of aspects, maternal health. Um, and and yet, when I sort of stepped aside from from the sort of delivery of healthcare, um, I began to see that actually, um, the stories of of women, uh, particularly, um, were not being told that they were invisible. Um, and that's because when you have a man asking questions, uh, firstly, it can be difficult for women to reply honestly, and also it's inappropriate. And so, since two thousand and seven. I started having the privilege, actually, of being able to ask those questions and to visit in that way. At the same time, interestingly, that others did in other organisations. At the time, I was with Release International, but the same was emerging with Open Doors. Um, and, you know, your, your listeners will know all of these organisations, wonderful mm. organisations, CSW included. And with, with these, in this way we were finding that we were getting anecdotal evidence. So we were finding stories and we were raising the stories. But if I'm really honest, Paul, men particularly don't listen to just stories. That's just what women say to women. And, you know, that's it. You just put it in that, you know, you put it over there and you tell everyone over there that that's what's happening to women. What was a game changer which might have overlapped with other things in the media, like the Me Too campaign, but it did. It was actually at the same time. It wasn't really stimulated by that. Was more um, data. You know, it doesn't sound that extractive, but it was data. It's a proper analysis. So for years, um, we had had the um, World Watch list of the top hundred countries and, and scorings there and other ways to measure persecution and oppression. But what they started to ask were loaded questions. Like you said, actually, Paul, if you ask with an intentional approach, you're going to get information. And it came back to us loudly that actually, when you start looking at asking a man what he experiences and a woman what he experiences, we found out also that men are suffering in a way that we hadn't actually 
really honed and understood. And so when the data comes back and starts telling us exactly what's happening, and not just because it's a Muslim country or it's a this country, it's actually universal, then we start listening. And so I remember we presented uh, some of this data in uh, Washington at a meeting there, and the room was silent. It was 75% men. And I said, let's make sure we start with the data on men first and then women because I wanted men to identify with what we were saying. And, and it, it was it, night, and, night and day mm. because they saw the statistics. And it seems like we have to see the evidence, just as Christ and the resurrection. You know, I don't believe you women. Let me see for myself. This is how it came to us. We had to show them very clearly. Which is in itself a sad reality that the, although it was in some ways anecdotal, the fact that it was not enough to prompt investigation is a sad reality. Now, if you want to find out more about the work that Emma and her team are doing and that we are talking about this week, genderandreligiousfreedom.org is the organisation that she is the founding director of, genderandreligiousfreedom.org. Take a look at that for yourself and you will find out an awful lot of information, an awful lot more about the reality and an awful lot of reasons it has to be said to pray. But it's worth perhaps just taking a look at your own journey to this. You touched on it there, but the truth is, Emma, you didn't exactly grow up on the mean streets. I mean, you you weren't exactly an inner city girl that was faced with with hardship. So how how did how did you find yourself down yeah. this journey? It's it's still extraordinary, really. So I went to nine schools before I was eleven. Um, and so I had to learn as a very young age how to make friends and how to make friends across all kinds of ways. So before I was um, 10, I we moved every few years. Um, I was in Scotland and the, the Northwest, the, the Midlands, et cetera, et cetera. So I had different accents as I moved. Um, and then we landed in, in Surrey, darling, if you're sorry. And um, I'm not messing, you know, I know there's listeners in Surrey and it's, it's a lovely place. But actually what, what made you know, the Emma and get interested. I suppose I did have a strong sense of right or, right or wrong. And I suppose if, even as a youngster, if I was cut into half and, you, you know, like a piece of rock, I might have had justice written mm. in the middle. But it was a gentle justice, you know, because I've, I'm, I'd like to say I'm, I'm very relatable. I'm quite diplomatic. Um, I'm not one to to be aggressive or um, in, in the way that I, I um, address these issues, I find clever ways, ways that God leads to communicate on the, in the way. And actually, as I before I went to my nurse training, so I left at 18, I went on a trip to North Africa with World Horizons. And it was one of those go on an adventure, do what the older teenagers have done in your youth group, sort of a trip and go where they're really lovely blokes are going as well you know as an 18 year old young woman um, and it was a big adventure you go in a van and you camp outside and you get rained on and you know everything um 
But it was there that actually I had space to meet with God in a different way. I'd be, become a Christian when I was about 14. And, and I think that's the challenge, really, that, to, that, that was mine to own at that time. And Paul, to our listeners, that actually if we have the courage, even as a jumped up, you know, privileged 18-year-old, I did at least say to God, What's what do you want of me? Mm. You know, it was literally like that. And so by the time I came back from that trip, I realized that my nursing was the key to unlock the door. And I was already pushing against my privileged upbringing. And I'll tell you something really awful. And um, I was so embarrassed by my father's car, which was, I think, a, um, a Daimler. And... <laughs> <laughs> that I refused to be driven by him to drop me off at the at the, at the hospital while I was training. Because in my day, I'm really old, Paul. We didn't go to university. We went straight to the hospital yes. to the nurse and thing. Um, and, uh, well, you know, old, young. And uh, and so I refused to go in his car, even though it had a bigger boot, more spacious. And so I, I so <laughs> they didn't know what to do with me because they knew I was immovable. So I drove in my mum's Chrysler, really beaten up Chrysler called D- Doris, and with stacks of, ba- of boxes in. And my dad followed us like <laughs> in his car. <laughs> but at least I got out of the Chrysler. Yes. At the nurses' home, and so what was that saying? It's inverted snobbery. It's having an issue of my identity and everything else like that. But there was still something innate in me saying that isn't that that isn't my future. Um, that actually that there's something else there. And so that's that's where it was born out. Pretty stubborn, Paul, and rebellious. Yeah, but the Lord uses what we've got, doesn't He? And yeah. He He calls us in what we've got. And and I suppose it was the early seeds of a willingness to identify. Because I, I think the work that you do, and especially the work that you do with projects supporting young women who are facing persecution. I mean. It is about identifying with them, not mm. just about helping them, isn't it? It has to be. Yeah, it is. And we have to be really, really uh, careful. I mean, I'm studying at the moment, so we're looking a lot at decolonialization. And so, you know, I have to say to you, Paul, as a friend, but hand on heart, there is the white saviour complex yes. that made yeah. me think, oh, maybe I'll be able to make a difference in the world. And, you know, you might ask us, um, you know, we'll just say oh, we're just still saving the world sort of thing, you know, a, a bit cheeky. But it's not great, you know, when we really look at that core within us. And so I've had to, yes, sort of be very aware of my privilege, but also knowing that actually God's made us family. We're the body of Christ here. and so. To spend time together or even on Zoom, I've been teaching on Zoom in Pakistan, in all sorts of places around the world and women, you know, training them in all sorts of ways. And, and, you know, they look at me and they think, well, she's got that. I've got this. But actually, when we we connect through Jesus Mm. and we realize that we are loved and respected and valued. As as Jesus's followers, that's our that's our commonality, and and maybe yes, I can bring some resource, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but I would much rather see that they find that within themselves, and I come with less so that they say they see that they have more, and that's really key. I made the point earlier on that that one of the things I know about you, and indeed your husband, and the work that you've done together working with aid organisations, is that. 
you have at times been confronted with realities that, well, I, I use the phrase, we challenge your faith in God, let alone you challenge your mm -hmm. faith in, in humanity. And your experience, your, your knowledge, your, uh, your connection with the Rwandan genocide was formative, wasn't it, in setting the direction for where you took this call? Yes, it was. And again, my motivation was probably like, well, you know, I could I could help. Uh, you know, I was a, I was a midwife um, and I asked my manager to have some leave uh, for a few months to be able to go and work in a relief team. And that was in 1994, having seen just the appalling scenes of the genocide and people leaving um, uh, Rwanda at that time. But yes, it was formative. It's where I met my husband and um, Andy. And um, why was it formative? I'll tell you why it was formative, because I think it's very important to know what it is to feel helpless, to feel out of control, to realise the magnitude of, of the world against the, the little drops that we have to offer. But to also see that if you have enough drops, you have a river. And if you have a river, you have a lake. And if you have a lake, you can have an ocean. And so I've never lo lost sight of that, that actually, if I can bring my, my, uh, what, my, yeah, my contribution, then maybe if someone else can add to that and someone else to that, then we can, we can make a difference. So to be honest, Paul, I never give up. You know, people say, oh, you know, I'm tired of speaking about this issue or that issue. I'm just so wearisome. And it is, it really is. But actually, if it's if it's what God has given for you to yeah, be yeah. and to be a part of, it's his strength that enables us. And so in my young days, I would get I would get very, very distraught or tired. You know, often, you know, we've suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's not due to weakness, but it's it's due to actually the, the scenarios we were in. But nowadays, not saying I couldn't get PTSD again. That is a possibility. Of course it is. But it does mean that the, the level of resilience, I suppose, that's a word. When I'm teaching about this, because I teach on this a little bit, um, I talk to them um, and say, actually, resilience isn't, is a trendy word. But actually, if you look in scripture, it's a word we would use really for perseverance or endurance. Yeah. So how, what's helping me persevere? What's helping my sisters, my brothers persevere? Well, it's because of our knowledge of Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fact that he will strengthen us because he strengthens us you know, as, as God on high. You know, he's our rock. He is our fortress, and he will not be shaken. I will be, but he will not be. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. My guest this week is Emma Dipper. She's founding director of genderandreligiousfreedom.org. I heartily recommend you take a look at that website while we are talking or immediately after we've finished. Genderandreligiousfreedom.org. A lot of insight into the things not only that drive Emma and her team, but also to highlight what has been for many, many decades a hidden reality of the impact of persecution specifically specifically on women and how that has brought a greater understanding to the impact of persecution on men. Across the board, religious freedom is a thing that's important to Emma, but in particular, we focus on the reality today on the experience of Christians who are persecuted for their faith. And one of the things that very often, I mean, it comes up for me when we talk about this on the program, we do an interview with Open Doors about the World Watch List and people are saying it and we hear it again and again and again. 
when you see the depth of cruelty, of inhumanity, of of torture, of violence, of oppression that is put into the lives of Christians who are persecuted, Christian women that are persecuted, do you never find yourself going, seriously, God? I mean, where are you? What's, why, why is this going on? People must say that to you. Where is God when it's all going to what's it in a handcart? Yeah. And so, and, oh, such a, that's, to be honest, Paul, what you've just spoken are words of Psalms, you know, words of those who are forebearers before us. And that's exactly it. And I think that's what we have to say, that sometimes we think we can just cover up the, the depths of our pain and our despair and our questioning of God. Oh, my word. How many times have I told people, God knows you're angry with him anyway. You may as well say it out loud. You know, he is a, he, this is our living, lived reality. And so, so what do I do? I, um, I sometimes distract myself, you know, and just try and ease this, this busy head and heart um but also i i have to look for what i have to acknowledge that pain i think that's really important that we are we are in a um a circle of trying to find the happy ending at the end of the film you know we, we you know we have to have that completion but actually we need to when we live within the pain mm -hmm. we understand much more of the reality of our faith and the faith of others and so I'm not saying, you know, beat yourself up on purpose. But what I am saying is if that comes, if those real questions come and they have to me, they probably have to you and to lots of our listeners, then I think let's acknowledge that before our Father God, because he knows and understands that pain. And what and part does the experience, the, the response to the persecution, to the oppression, to the targeting that you mentioned earlier, from those who are on the receiving end, how much of what they bring actually colours how you respond to that? Because I remember, it's going back a few years now, where we had not long on Talking Point talked about the persecution of Christians in Pakistan. And Release International had done a report, and we'd looked at it, we'd covered it. And within... A few short weeks, it might even have been just a few days, there was a terrible natural disaster in Pakistan. And there was images of Christian women going out to serve the community and care for the community that had been overtly persecuting them. Now, that still emotionally really affects me. And I think... That level of grace in the face of such appalling treatment, I mean, that really does teach us a lesson or two, doesn't it, about what we think our faith is about. Yeah, it really does. And, and I think if we follow the world's narrative on this, they would say you deserve to be bitter. You deserve to look after yourself. You deserve to just, you know, bunker down, get what you need. And yet the fruit of the Spirit and, and the fruit that you saw in those women's lives is the fact that they're still willing and able to serve. And, and that, that's, a, that's a living faith. And, that, and that's, 
you know, no one can really explain that other mm. than what we see and know of, of each other and what we read in scripture. But yes, I mean, I, I sometimes, I just hold my, my, my head in my hands and breathe really, because I just, sometimes it is utterly just too much. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, I, I've up until recently, I've always had someone, you know, a, a child to, to care for or, or something else. And that, that sort of brings you back to reality and you have the immediacy of need in front of you. And I think that's God's grace as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let me bring a quote to you, and it's taken from, if you go on the genderandreligiousfreedom.org website, scroll down to the bottom of the page where there is a, a kind of rolling banner of some quotes. And there's a quote from Helen Fisher. She says this, The vulnerability of Christian women is being deliberately exploited to maximise the damage to the entire church. That made me wonder about the impact it has, the fact that there is this deliberate targeting of the female members of a community, the young women as well as the older women, and the way that they are on the receiving end of this. What does that do to a faith community? What, do, what impact does that have on the church in that community what what impact does it have on the experience of the men in their faith in that community so first of all as you said it increases the effectiveness of that persecution um so what they're doing is they going for the the most vulnerable places and they they're exposing that in a way that is incredibly strategic and I'll tell you what effect it has. Obviously, um, when people are witnessing atrocities, um, that affects them emotionally, spiritually, um, physically, uh, and relationally. But I'm, I'm going to add something here, uh, Paul, which is, is in some ways even harder than what, what we've discussed so far. And that is that um, the offences and the, um, the, the assaults done to women is actually um, reflecting what is also happening within the church. So if you were having, if you were looking at a picture of the church, you would have the assaults going in uh, into the church from the outside, but the relationship between men and women is also broken. And so you have uh, many times, and we've seen it and we've had evidence of this, that actually there is also domestic violence within the home. There is also the oppression of women in the home. There is also the putting down of women's roles and the value of women and girls in the home and in the church. And so when these assaults come, they blend in because it's just mirroring what's happening. It means that it's more effective and it means that the church can be, not all the time, but can be complicit with this. And so those offenders or the perpetrators have impunity because they aren't charged, because it merely mirrors what is also happening within the church. And, and that's our next step. And I, sus I suspect that this is a bit of a chicken and egg question, but is that because the church is influenced has by the culture in which it has grown up and that demeaning of women is a cultural norm which allows the, the persecution violence to occur but also um 
nurtures the the domestic abuse and violence to her? Or is it because there is this persecution going on that it changes the attitude of men within the church towards the women within their own community? So at the moment, that's what we're exploring. And what we the evidence that we see is that is the former, what you say, Paul, that actually it's mirroring what societal um, expectations are. Um, and so it's it's culture and society led. It's also um, perpetuated by distorted theologies. So people will take the um, the curse and say that's a prescription for how it should be, rather than a consequence of sin. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at actually how God, uh, how Jesus uh, restored women, restored the relationship with with men and women, and that continues through the New Testament, and and uh, you know, let's take for instance the story of Mary and Martha. Um, we often say, "Oh, don't be a, a Martha, busying yourself around, sit at Jesus's feet." And we've we've totally um, translated that wrong because actually the most profound thing that should come out of that story is the fact that there is a woman sat at a rabbi's feet receiving teaching yeah. in amongst the room of men. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got to return back to some of the scripture basis and see how radical Jesus was. And then if you then add trauma, and then you add that we haven't taken care of men in their trauma, because often trauma care is for women, then, you know, this is a perfect storm. And and that's what my next steps are. This is what we you will see going up on our website soon, and that there are restorative or restorations is a, is a new framework and new training to really actually build the strength of the church within the context of persecution so that we strengthen relationships between men and women because of distortions that have been fed to them through their lives. But how do you carry that forward? I mean, you mentioned earlier the the sort of you know post-colonial awareness of the white savior complex, and of course, it's just as, as true that the the imposition of Western culture on cultures around the world in the name of faith is also something that has left a, a legacy of issues yeah. that we struggle with. So you know, how how do we change within a church, within a theology, a culture that is skewed away from what we would see as the biblical right perspective without sounding like, well, here we are, we are the people from the West and we're going to come and we're going to sort this out for you. Yeah. So um, this is essential. So what what we're looking at is making sure that anything um, training that's done can be contextualized. So the core of the message is doesn't doesn't change, but making sure that people have time to bring it into their own lived reality, and that's the key to the, this restorations course. Actually, that it's a lived reality, um, and so that's what's changing. And and we do find that evidence says that when people have have really reflected on this it has changed how they're relating one to the other um, and that is strengthening and that is changing and it is transforming and and I would I'm studying at the moment and my hope and dream is that actually I start to understand men a lot more you know we've talked a lot about women on this mm. um, but actually we have really not fully understood the needs and and the drivers for men and how they express their masculinity within these contexts and and so that's my next question and that will be another time when I'd love to share more. Is part of the problem that we have 
almost oversimplified the realities of persecution and its impact on both men and women. And to, to Eddie Lyle, who used to, to run Open Doors UK, still very involved with Open Doors UK, of course. But I remember talking to Eddie years ago um, about the, the way in which we do have an almost condescending or can have a condescending attitude that just simplifies and enables us to think that we understand persecution. And the nuance and the complexity and the depth of impact is often missed. Is that... Have, have we just gone, oh, we understand what it means to be persecuted and left it there? rather than going deep enough into understanding and connecting and listening to our brothers and sisters? I think, yeah, if we really get to the core of the questions or, or the depths of understanding, I think from my experience, and others might not agree with me, Paul, but it comes to it's an offence of our, our very core of identity. That actually if my, the core of who I am is Jesus' follower, and that is something that's hated and to be pursued. That's what persecution is. Then that, 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 isn't, that affects who I am and what I am. And yet, you might ask the question, well, why don't we have much, much of this going on in, in the UK? And we do. We do have it. And we can that be another subject. You know, there are challenges um, to people. And there are people coming to faith from other religions that face very violent persecution here in the UK. However, what we are are realizing as as i look at this is i'm not being salt salty enough i'm not shining my light enough because actually who i am isn't an offense to my community mm. because i'm just blending in as well mm. i'm just you know i'm just doing what they do i'm i'm consuming what they consume i'm watching what they watch and i'm not wanting to be puritanical and say lock yourself away and things but i am saying actually how can i bring more saltiness to life yeah as, as Jesus's followers, um, and then the truth is revealed. And you'll see that that truth, it sets us free, and then it sets our nation free. And isn't that the greatest of gifts? The nuance that you are bringing out at the moment and the, the nuance of, of the gendered nature of persecution, is that changing government policy and perspective on this as well? Because all around us, we hear a call to be aware of the impact of a variety of things on minority groups and women's rights and concerns about women's rights, especially in some sections of the world where there are fundamentalist religions that are in control and are drawing back and oppressing women's ability to work or to function outside the home. So there's a lot of sensitivity to that amongst foreign policy at the minute. Is that also picking up then this issue of faith, religious persecution in this context? It is. And that's the great thing that we're, we're not chasing someone else's tail here. We're part of leading on this. And, uh, and so um, you'll remember reporting on the Bishop of Truro's report in 2019. There'll be a review of it this year. And I remember 
talking, speaking on that and giving evidence to that. And I said, you've got to start to look at things through a gendered lens. Remember, for men and women, but uh, but this re- what this does is allows women's rights to intersect with the freedom to have a religion or mm. to change a religion or to worship a religion with other intersects of human rights, like the freedom freedom of speech, the freedom to um, to migrate, whatever it is. And so, yes, it, it really is having an effect on, on policy, so much so that um, I'm part of um, the UK forum on this, where we every meeting we're meeting with Fiona Bruce, who's a special envoy on this, and she she hears us, she listens to it. We we wrote letters on Afghanistan, and, and that that went to the foreign minister and the and the prime minister. Um, so yes, it's it's our privilege to be able to to bring these issues to right to the the highest of heights of such. So what about the church? If government is picking up on it if society is sensitive to it is the church sensitive enough to it and what can we do as well as praying because all the time we ask a question like this what can we do the first thing is always prayer so we let's take that as read because sometimes we use that as an excuse to stop there Mm. so what do we need to be aware of how do we need to deepen our understanding and what can we do with that deeper understanding i just like to say that um gender is not um it's not a pet pet phrase at the moment we're, we're not just joining another bandwagon of gender this gender that um i would look at what we're, we're what we are understanding and say um church of god how are you nurturing your men and women to celebrate who they are? How are you ensuring that men and women are in leadership? How are we ensuring that they actually know who they are in Christ and to build disciples that will not look through a lens, whether I come from a blue box or a pink box, but they look through a lens of I'm in the Jesus box and making sure that we do not leave people who are invisible or left behind because they are women or girls, but we actually make the extra effort to look across our um, our committees, to look across our activities, to look across who and what we're doing in terms of interface of the community and making sure that we are giving the, the being the true image bearers of, of God, men and women. You see, that's, that's really interesting, though, because what you've just thrown back to me and to the church that is listening is exactly the same call as you're putting in place for the churches in those places where women are abused, women are persecuted, women are treated as second-class citizens. Examine your theology, examine your culture, examine the, your reality so that you might then be salt and light to the rest of your society are you also saying to us then church here in the uk examine what you do so that you can be salt and light to those communities that are struggling to identify how they should be because we've got young people leaving the church because we're arguing over these issues and as long as we continue to argue over this we will. We cannot bring the whole body of Christ to this, and so I'm a real advocate in partnership 
and and to doing things together. So where where you can, you put people together to be the equal image bearers of God. And people will say to me, but Emma, we haven't got women in leadership and I don't know who to ask to come and do this or do that. You know, I don't know women doing that. Start today. Start making sure that you're mm. finding them, you're growing them, you're nurturing them, and uh, and you're here on purpose. I'm not, I'm not sort of bigging up any particular scripture or position. I'm just saying, Church of God, make sure we show people who we truly are, and that we are equal image bearers of God, women and men, and let's make sure we're there together. I've mentioned a couple of times the website of the organisation that Emma is a part of, genderandreligiousfreedom.org. I really do recommend you go and have a look at some of the things that are written there, not least because there is a quote from an attendee at a consultation on this topic in Nigeria who said this, getting to know what the actual situation is with evidence made the situation that is faced very clear and stirred my heart to want to do something and to stir up others to do something as well. It is the easiest thing in the world for us in the UK, in the Western church, to pay lip service to caring about persecution to read the World Watch list, to say the odd prayer, to remember the day of prayer for the persecuted church once a year, and then just get on with our lives. But actually what we need to do, in the way that God, the journey that God has taken Emma and those who work with her and are passionate about this, we need to actually intentionally Focus on understanding what our brothers and sisters are enduring. Not to depress ourselves or bring ourselves down, but so that we can stand with them. So that we can walk, even metaphorically, alongside them. Yes, so we can pray, because prayer is always the first starting point. But also, so we can lift up voices on their behalf and the women who are being intentionally targeted to undermine not only their own lives, but also the efficacy of the church within their community, that they can be heard, that they can be seen, that their voices might be taken note of. But as well, we need to take note of the reality because we do need to challenge ourselves challenge our culture, challenge our perspective, challenge those maybe lighter shades of attitude that in another part of the world would manifest as persecution. But here, something slightly less, but no less damaging. For how can we be salt and light unless we first examine our own home? our own situation, our own culture? How can we call on people to amend their culture to improve their wider society unless we first do the same? The reality of gender and its role in religious freedom and the persecution that is gender-based 
is something we should all take note of, which is why we've done tonight's Life Issues. My guest is Emma Dipper, founder of genderandreligiousfreedom.org. Emma, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a real honour. Thank you, Paul. It's UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another one? Ta-da! Ta-da!